One of the amazing things, um, I want to begin by saying this to us today. One of the amazing things about us is our ability as humans, this is a human thing, our ability to see God prove himself faithful in our lives time and time again, and yet to forget about it, to forget it, and then to doubt and to fear or be fearful, and sometimes even be accusatory when things get difficult once again. And I want to talk about that a little bit later in the service, but I wanted to lay that thought out to you at the beginning because we're going to come back to that in our message today. We started a series a couple of weeks ago on the topic of the Bible. The Bible is a, Hebrew, uh, a little Latin phrase that means, it's tabiblia, it means the books, the books. It's a collection of 66 books wrapped in one. And actually, it's really two collections of books. The first collection is the Hebrew Scriptures, which tells the story of a nation, the Hebrew nation, their kind of their, their story. It's got 39 books. And then the Christian Scriptures, 27 books, or we've called them in our day and age the Old Testament and New Testament, but the Hebrew Scriptures and Christian Scriptures put together, making up the Bible as we have it today. And we're going to study the, kind of the overarching narrative of the Scriptures in the in the, um, in the next many, uh, well, weeks and months. And so we're starting at the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we began with the first few books are called the Pentateuch, and you'd think that we were going to start with the book of Genesis, but we did not start with Genesis. We started um, in the second book of Exodus because Exodus begins with the story of a man named Moses, who is important because he is instrumental in helping to write and preserve those first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. So we need to kind of know who Moses is to appreciate the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, okay? So we started with his story, then we're going to go back to Genesis after this. But um, if you missed the last couple of weeks where we set up the whole series last two weeks ago or we began with Moses last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. It would fill in the blanks. Uh, uh, our website, lighthousetheaterlake.com, has a, a sermon tab or a messages tab there. You can listen to them on podcast form or watch them on video form, and it maybe help you know what we're talking about today. But uh, especially last week, because Moses' story last week was a reminder to anyone here who's going through a season where you wonder if you were confident before and then you lost your way and wonder if, you know, if there's any purpose left or if God's got plans for you still or, or what, where do you go from here because of how life has gone. Last week was hopefully helpful to that theme as well. We started talking about Moses last week and how he was um, supposed to be killed as a baby and God miraculously intervened and spared his life. And then he was raised in the palace of Egypt in Pharaoh's household as the adopted son of the princess. And as an adult, he began to identify not with his upbringing in the palace of Egypt, but identify with the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, which were his people by birth. And he began to see how they were mistreated as slaves, and how they were oppressed, how they were beaten, how they were killed, and how they were suffering for hundreds of years at that point. And, and Moses steps in and tries to be a deliverer to these slaves, tries to rescue them. But instead of being able to rescue them, uh, he, it, it kind of backfires. And he kind of gets chased out of the country uh, in, in fear of his life. And he becomes an exile and a, and a, a fugitive. 
And he spends the next half of his life, uh, that, up to that point, living out in the wilderness of Midian. He becomes a shepherd. He gets married and has a family. And he looks back and says, what happened? I was living in the privilege and wealth of Egypt, tried to be a hero and a deliverer to serve the Lord, and it's all gone bad, and now I'm out here living with people I don't know, raising a family and looking back at what might have been and what happened and where I am today. But God came to Moses out there after 40 more years and said to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to go ahead and deliver the people. And now Moses doesn't, now he doesn't want to. Now he doesn't feel capable anymore. He doesn't feel worthy. He argues with God back and forth until God finally convinces him to go back to meet his brother Aaron, his older brother Aaron along the way. And together they would lead the people of Israel out of slavery. And we left off last week with some verses from Exodus chapter 4. And let's read them again. In Exodus 4.29, it says, Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And I want you to notice that again because their reaction when they heard this news of God going to deliver them from slavery and set them free, their initial impulse was to believe it, was to believe it and to worship God in faith. And that's important. We're going to come to that in a moment here. Well, what happens next is Moses goes to see Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh that the God of the Hebrews has told him to let all the Hebrew slaves, men, women, and children, and their livestock, let them leave Egypt and go take a three days journey, three days away, out into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to God. Now, they don't say what will happen next. They don't say that they're, whether they're coming back or not. They just say God says to let his people go three days away and offer sacrifices to him. And Pharaoh, he's thinking, if I let you go away three days, you ain't coming back. You're our slaves. So Pharaoh begins to argue and say, who, said to, who told you this, Moses? God? Please, which God? We have a whole pantheon of gods here in Egypt. We have the God of the sun, the God of the Nile River, the God of fertility, you name it. We have a whole bunch of them. Who, you want the God of the slaves? I mean, please, we've conquered them. Why should I care what God has to say to me? They're not going free. You're staying in where you are. When Moses leaves, Pharaoh becomes more angry and says, these slaves are too, have it too good. They never had it so good. I mean, they're over here trying to get out of town, get visions of grandeur, you know, that they're going to go off and have some kind of a party in the wilderness. And so Pharaoh says, you know what the problem is? They have too much time on their hands. We're not working them hard enough. That's the answer. We're not working them hard enough. So he tells the slave masters that they were no longer to help them gather straw. What happened was they were taking straw and using mud and building what we called mud bricks, building uh, cities. Uh, they weren't the, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the best technology of the time. You look at the pyramids and other things from ancient Egypt. But again, these are not all architects and super skilled people. They're slaves. And they're using their labor to build these cities that they dwelt in and do work for Egypt. And Pharaoh says to the slave masters, no more gathering straw for their work. You just tell them from now on, they got to go gather their own straw wherever they can find it, bring it back, and then still make their quota of bricks. And if they come short of their quota of brick making, you deal with them. 
So sure enough, that's what happens. The Israelites are not able, the Hebrew slaves are not able to gather enough straw and make the bricks in the same time every day, and the quota is not met. So the slave masters beat the Hebrew foreman, hoping that their beating will trickle down and they'll rain down on the people below them to make them produce more. And it's, it's untenable. It's, un, uh, it's, it's not a fixable situation. And so in Exodus 5 and verse 15, it says, So the Israelite foreman went to Pharaoh and pleaded with him, Please don't treat your servants like this, they begged. They're like, look, we're your servants. Stop it. We are given no straw, but the slave drivers still demand, make bricks. We are being beaten, but it isn't our fault. Your own people are to blame. But Pharaoh shouted, you're just lazy, lazy. That's why you're saying, let us go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still produce the full quota of bricks. Ouch. Wow. The Israelite foremen could see that they were in serious trouble when they were told that you must not reduce the number of bricks you make each day. This is important. Watch this. Verse 20. As they left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. The foreman said to them, May the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword in their hands, an excuse to kill us. Then, uh, this is terrible. And Moses is upset. And by the way, isn't it interesting that just a moment ago, the, the, that the Israelites were hearing Moses' message and they were believing God? Just a moment ago, they were worshiping God in faith. And now, things have gotten bad and they're turning to Moses and saying, how dare you? And Moses, in the next verse, says this. Moses went back to the Lord and protested. Moses said, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you've done nothing to rescue them. And of course, at that point, God shows up to Moses and says, listen, it's all part of the plan. It's a bumpy road sometimes to, to, to overcome a problem. And there's the bumps in this road, but I've got this. And when I'm done with Egypt, you're going to be set free and you're going, to be in, you're going to be fine. Just have faith in me. Tell the Israelites, trust me, I still got them. But in, in, Hebrew, in, in Exodus 6 verse 9, it says, So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. They couldn't, even, they couldn't even listen to this message of hope. Have you ever been there in life where at one time you had full of hope and confidence and then life happened and you lost your hope and your joy and your faith along the way? That you said, I believed it earlier and then all of a sudden it got hard and the Israelites are so overcome with the hardness of life that they're like, I don't know, man. That sounded good before, but I'm just too discouraged right now. And this is where they were at this point. It hadn't gone the way they hoped it would go. And they're not even listening. They're not even listening anymore. Well, at this point, uh, Moses begins a confrontation, a series of confrontations with Pharaoh. 
He does the same thing we saw last week where he goes to Pharaoh in front of his people and he um, does the thing where he throws the rod on the ground and it turns into a snake and that whole, we won't get into that part of the story. But that was the first sign to try to show Pharaoh in Egypt that God is real and he's going to do something big and warn them, don't fight God. You're enslaving and treating people with brutality for way too long now and God has finally said enough is enough. Let the slaves go. But they wouldn't listen. So Moses unleashes a series of plagues, one at a time, each time warning them what's coming. First, he goes out to the, to the Nile River when Pharaoh's out there, and, he, and, he, and he turn, the water is turned into blood. Fish die in the, in the water. That's people's drinking source. It's a pretty severe thing. But God is just putting the squeeze on them. And he's going to keep upping the stakes one at a time from here. First plague was, was turning the water into blood. The second plague was frogs. And if frogs don't sound like a plague to you because you think frogs are cute, it's because you've never had a plague of frogs, okay? You get enough frogs, they're not so cute anymore, right? When you're getting there, they're getting into your food prep, when they're getting into your, you know, when they're grinding under your chariot wheels, when you get out of bed in the morning and put it in your slipper and you step into a frog. I mean, you know, there's at some point you're like, this is disgusting, and it's a plague of frogs, now, I don't mean to slow down here in the story because we have a lot of plagues to mention, and I'm just going to rush through most of them. But I wanted to pause on the frogs deal to tell you one little funny detail of the story that I don't want, you to, I don't want us to rush past since we're here. It's really weird. In Exodus 8, verse 8, it says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. They do not make a good sandwich. They're everywhere, you know. Plead with the Lord to take them away. I will let your people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. Great. Wonderful news, right? Moses says in verse 9, you set the time. When? Tell me when you want me to pray for you, for your officials and your people, and then for you and your houses, and you'll be rid of the frogs. They'll remain only in the Nile River. Well, the obvious answer to that question is this. When? Now. Why aren't you praying yet? Like 10 minutes ago, please. Like what? I mean, it's an easy answer. I mean, that's, that's terrible. We just discussed that together. And yet Pharaoh does the most insane thing. He answers him and says, hmm, do it tomorrow. All right, Moses replied, it'll be as you have said. Then you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Why? I've, since I was a teenage boy, when I read the story, I've always marveled at that, that, that request. Ah, tomorrow. Like, this makes no sense why he would say that. And I don't have a great answer. I don't have a theological deep answer. The only thing I always think about when I read that is that we're not much different than Pharaoh sometimes. How many times have we had something in our lives that we know is harmful to us, bad for us physically or financially or otherwise, and we know it, and we know we, and we even beg God, we want to we get past it. But then we're like, eh, tomorrow, right? It's crazy how we can be. But anyhow, that's, I didn't want to rush past that for whatever that was worth because it's an interesting detail. Well, Pharaoh changes his mind once the frogs go away and he says, you know what? Psych! The, Egyptian, the, the Hebrews are not going into freedom. They're going to stay as our slaves. So God keeps sending more plagues. The third plague came. It was lice. <laughs> Flies was fourth. Fifth was a disease amongst the livestock. A bunch of their livestock got sick and began to... Um, to uh, just die and, and just spread through their cattle, which is their livelihood, it's their food, it's their, it's their dairy, it's their meat. 
And then he sends a sixth one, which is boils, like a disease that was a pandemic throughout the entire nation of Egypt that boils would break out in their body, and they were painful and terrible, trying to get them to wake up. And the seventh one he sent was hail. He said, and Moses would come to Pharaoh and say, okay, you, change, you, you, you keep changing your mind, saying, the, okay, they can go. Nope, they can't go. They can go. Nope, they can't go. So Moses says that at, at this point, the next one's going to be hail, Hail's going to fall from the sky. It's going to kill more of your livestock and people outside. It's coming. God is still dealing with you. I want to pause on this one as well to notice something that happens in the story. In Exodus 9, verse 20, it says this. Some of Pharaoh's officials were afraid because of what the Lord had said. They quickly brought their servants and livestock in from the fields, but those who paid no attention to the word of the Lord left theirs out in the open. That's an interesting little tidbit of the story that some of the people around Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not listening, but some of his servants were listening. They believed God's word and they went and rescued their livestock and their, and their people from the worst outcome. And I just want to make a couple observations right now before we finish the story. God is raining down some pretty harsh judgment on Egypt. And if you don't understand why, we should not, it shouldn't be hard to figure out. They have spent four centuries enslaving a group of people. Terrible, the human slavery. Murdering them, killing their babies, as we saw last week, oftentimes. Treating them, who knows what kind of atrocities against the men and women of that nation as they enslaved them and beat them and mistreated them for generations. And God is saying enough's enough. But, but it's an interesting couple things that are happening in these verses. The first thing that's interesting to me is that God, even though he's executing judgment on the Egyptians for this evil, he's still showing his merciful side because he keeps coming along and saying, I'm warning you, let him go, and then I'm going to send a judgment. But he doesn't come out with a nuclear bomb. He comes off with a pretty harsh one. And then that doesn't work, so he, he raises the stakes. And every time he warns them, I'm warning you, and as we read the story, early on, Pharaoh just hardens his heart time and time again. Eventually, God would harden his heart and, get, and see it through. But throughout the whole early stage, Pharaoh had every chance to change his mind, every chance to, to, to do differently. But he kept ignoring the warnings, ignoring the previous judgments. And, and what God's doing here is probably what most parents have done, raising kids. When you basically told your children, oh, do we, don't do that. That's bad. That's dangerous. And you warned them, don't do that. And then if they don't listen to you, maybe you put a consequence in there to discourage them from doing something for their own good. And if that doesn't work, maybe you raise the consequence to fix the behavior. If that doesn't work, maybe you raise the consequence again. And, and you're not, if, you're a, if you're a decent parent, you're not coming out of the closet every time with a nuclear bomb blowing up and overreacting because you can't handle it. Hopefully what we're doing is we're just trying to do the least possible you know, demands, the least possible consequences every time to fix the problem, right? But you keep raising the game until the job gets done. Employers might know the same thing at, job, at jobs if you're, a, if you're a decent and love your employees. You just do what you have to do, no, no more harsh than necessary, but you keep raising the stakes until finally someone might have to get fired. And so God is coming to Egypt and saying, look, you're doing some horrible atrocities here. Stop it. Here's the warning. Here's the first plug. Let me raise the stakes every time. And so God, even in his judgment, was being merciful because he's a merciful God. Second thing I want you to notice in the story is that it seemed like Moses is not getting through to Pharaoh. It's bouncing off of his thick head. But even as we just read, some of the servants around Pharaoh, they were listening. They believed Moses. They believed God. And they rescued their livestock. 
And that's encouraging because sometimes in life, all of us know what it's like to try to do the right thing. And we think that it's not working. We think it's doing no good. We're hitting into a brick wall. But sometimes what you and I don't know is that somewhere around us, in a way that we don't even know, is being affected. Someone is being helped. Some good is being done. Maybe it's in our peripheral. Maybe we're not noticing it. But maybe what we want to happen isn't happening, but God is using it in other ways. And in this story, other people were being helped, even though Pharaoh would not listen. Anyhow, sure enough, after the uh, hail stops, Pharaoh once again says the slaves can't go, so God sends more plagues. Number eight was locusts, eating up the rest of the crops that survived many of these, these, these judgments. And then the ninth one was darkness. And I, don't, I can't go on about this. I want to. But darkness is not like we used to, to darkness when you go into the room and your eyes are not adjusted to the dark yet. Real, true, utter darkness is a darkness that can be felt. There's a whole science and conversation about this that I don't have time for today. But these are judgments. And what's happening in every single one is at some point Pharaoh tries to compromise the, 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 the terms. Like early on he'd say, fine, you can go free. And then he'd change his mind and say, no, you can't. But after several of these, he began to try to negotiate. So at one point he's like, okay, fine, you can go. The plague leaves. And Pharaoh says, but you want to go three days into the wilderness, and that's just a little too far. Bad things happen in the wilderness. We care about you. That's why we enslaved you. We care about you. So you should not go three days in the wilderness. You just go, just go a little way so we can keep an eye on you for your own good, of course. And Moses is like, nope, we're going three days. And so Pharaoh's like, well, fine. Then you're going nowhere. Stay as a slave. So then another plague would come. Pharaoh would say, okay, I changed my mind. You can go. The plague would leave. Pharaoh would say, okay, I'll tell you what. The men can go because it's dangerous out there for women and children. So the men can go on your three-day excursion and the women and children stay here where it's safe. That way the guys will come back for their families, stay in slaves. And Moses is like, no, we're all going. Pharaoh's like, well, fine, then no one's going. So another plague would come. And so he'd say, fine, I'll let you go. Then the plague would leave, and then Pharaoh would be like, okay, I'll tell you what. The women and kids can go with the guys, but don't take all your cattle. That's just a lot of work, and it will, it'll slow you down. Leave your livestock here, and when you come back, because you'll come back for the livestock, and... You can't survive without them in the wilderness. And if you do try to survive without them and don't make it, at least we get your livestock. So leave the livestock here. And Moses is like, nope, we all go. Everything goes. And Pharaoh's mad because Moses won't budge. Moses won't make a deal. And so Pharaoh's finally, at this, after the ninth plague, Pharaoh loses his cool and says in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 28, he says, get out of here. Pharaoh shouts at Moses. I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Wow. Very well, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. But before Moses walks out, he explains to Pharaoh that God's sending one more judgment and it's going to be, it's going to be all that it takes. He's sending one more judgment. This last judgment is going to be the death He's all the firstborn children of every household, including every animal family, is going to die from this next plague. Pharaoh, your family, down to the guy in prison's family, everyone in Egypt is going to lose the death of the firstborn male child. It's going to be bad. And again, it's severe. God's dealing severely with a bunch of people who refuse to let the people they've enslaved and have taken advantage of go free. But it's come to this. This is what it's going to take for you to let go of the Hebrew people. 
So the judgment's coming tonight. And Pharaoh says that. And Pharaoh's like, Moses is like Pharaoh. You'll be wailing so loud, the whole land will hear you're crying, but you won't hear a peep out of Israel because they're not going to feel the sting of death. Not even a dog's going to bark there. But you're going to come and find me, and you're going to beg us to leave. And Moses storms out of there in anger. Sure enough, Moses goes from there to the Israelites and tells them, guys, get ready. It's time. God's going to set you free. He's sending a last, very painful judgment on Egypt. And when they're done with you, you're going to be sent out of here fast. So here's what you're supposed to do. He, told, he gave them instructions. He says, I want you to go out to the flocks of your cattle and take a lamb and kill it and cook the meat to eat for your family. If it's a small family, you can share it with another family. But, but, but make sure you eat all the meat. I want you to, to prepare the animals. I want you to pack up all your stuff. Get it in your travel suitcase, luggage all on wheels, all rolled out there. Pick all your stuff up. Put your shoes on your feet and eat that lamb, eat that meal, dressed with your shoes on and your stuff packed and ready to go. Before you eat the meat while you're cooking it, take the blood of that lamb and put the blood outside of your houses on the doorposts of your house. Why? He'll explain why. But he put the blood on the doorposts and then come back and eat the lamb dressed and ready to go with your stuff packed. And God explains in Exodus 12, verse 12, he says, On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you're staying. That's what the blood's for. So I know when I come down, oh, you're there. The blood tells me you're there. You followed my instructions. You're, you're, it's, it's you. He says, and, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this is important right here. Because this would be the domino that would finally cause the Egyptians to stop the atrocities of slavery for four centuries. This would be the judgment that would get them to send Israel free. And Israel would celebrate this night, this day, as a national day of independence for the rest of their history. Just like we celebrate July 4th every year as a national day for the United States of Independence, and we celebrate it with fireworks, you know, this is their Independence Day. For the last, not, for us it's been 250 years in the United States. For them it's been 3,500 years of independence now. And to this day, the Jewish people who are who are uh, plugged into that, still 3,500 years later celebrate this. They actually set their calendars at this time to be the beginning of their calendar year, which is around April for us. And they call the name of this celebration, this independent celebration, they call it the Passover. The Passover celebration. Because on that day, God passed over them and judged the nation and finally set them free. So it's been celebrated to this day, and you've probably heard of it. Anyhow, sure enough, Exodus 12, 28, so the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone 
had not died. And it's brutal. It's a brutal story. But remember, God took every lesser step along the way to get them to let go. And remember, the Egyptians had been doing this for four centuries to, the, to, the, to their slaves, killing their children. Remember last week, they killed their babies. They were, they were torturing them. They were beating them. They were atrocities. And, and who knows how many rapes and murders and beatings and, and wrongs have been done for 400 years. And finally, God had said, I'm trying to stop it, and you're not listening, and it cost them dearly. And we understand that as a nation, and we should relate to that as, as, as Americans today, because even a couple a hundred and fifty years ago now, when, when much of the world had already started to wake up to the wrongness of human slavery and chattel slavery, in the United States, we still had slavery as a problem in our country, and we held on to it for decades because we didn't want to let go slaves in certain parts of our nation. And we wouldn't do it. We were, we were way behind getting that thing fixed in, in America, weren't we? And what happened? Before it was all said and done, many of our nation's sons were killed, weren't they, in the Civil War? Right? A lot of people died there too because sometimes it takes a very steep price to purge the evil out of our lives. And in this case, that's what took place to end the slavery in Egypt. Anyhow, the Israelites, uh, uh, they're going to leave. In fact, Pharaoh says in verse 31, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave, leave my people. Take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. We are decimated here. Go, but bless me as you leave. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible for they thought we're all going to die it says that the Israelites were instructed by Moses to actually go to their Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, can I borrow your jewelry and your nice stuff and all your things, your nice clothes? And they're like, please take whatever you want. Just get out of here. And they basically looted them on their way out. They just left with all sorts of stuff. And they began to be, after 400 years of oppression, they were slaves set free. The first day of their new life. Well, what's interesting is what happens next, and we got to get to this so we can land this plane in a little bit here. But what happens is this. As they're leaving Egypt, God is going to lead them. But these are people who've never been independent, folks. And we always overlook this idea. They've been slaves their whole lives. They don't know what it's like to govern themselves. So that's what all the next, that's what the early part of the Bible is about, is setting up a newly a nation's government. They've never been, so, so how are they going to go? They're supposed to go to this land that their great ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were promised, called the land of Canaan, which they would call the promised land. But to get there, they got to go through enemy hostile territory sometimes. They could be attacked and have military conflict. And they're just freed slaves. They don't, they're not ready for that. So at first, God does some miracles to lead them along. First of all, he takes them the long way. He avoids some conflict early on. And he actually does something absolutely cool. He sends a giant cloud by day to lead them through the wilderness. A miracle. Like a giant cloud. And says, just follow the cloud. So it's pretty obvious where to go, and he led them that way, which was amazing because in the wilderness, it gets so hot, you could dehydrate, you could suffer, you could, you could, it could be hard on you. So the cloud was a, a means of, of caring for them and also motivating them to follow along, right? And at nighttime, he would lead them through a pillar of fire, which is also nice because at the wilderness at night would get very cold. And God used these miracle signs. I mean, they saw Egypt go through 10 plagues. They've seen themselves set free miraculously after hundreds of years. They're seeing a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, leading them through the wilderness. 
It's amazing. And God leads them kind of a longer path away from conflict. And they get down eventually to the edge of the Red Sea. And they don't have boats. They don't have a, a fleet of ships to cross the Red Sea. So they're figuring we're going to go around the thing next. But about that time, back in Egypt, the Egyptians were done burying their dead going through the processes of grief, which at some point includes denial and anger. And they had the bright idea that said, wait a minute, we should have never let those slaves go free. We lost all of our workforce. Let's go after them. And it's such an incredibly stupid thing to do. And I wouldn't almost believe it could happen except for I've lived long enough with human beings to know how bullheaded and stupid we can get. That they're like, nope, we're going after them. They get 600 chariots and a bunch of soldiers and they just charge after these people that just... They were decimated in refusing to let them go free. Now they're charging after them to bring them back. And they catch up to them at the edge of the Red Sea. And the Israelites are in between the two. They're in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And you know what the Israelites did? They're like, what? Cool. Let's see how God's going to deliver us now. Go, God, go. No, that's not what happened. Okay, let me tell you what happened. Exodus 14, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? What? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. I'm sorry. Did you not see 10 amazing plagues of miracles that got you out of slavery beyond all human comprehension? And a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night leading you along that you're like, like God doesn't know what he's up to, like God's incapable. In this moment, you're gonna be like, you brought us out here to kill us and you're gonna complain and turn against Moses and against God. It's insane. It's almost like, did you not just live through what you've lived through? Have you forgotten? And that's the key. They had forgotten. In fact, here's what I wanna propose to us today is that fear, well, fear makes us forget. I said at the beginning of the service, if you come to a spot in our lives as people where we've seen God work time and time and time again, bring us through things that we never thought we'd get through, but we somehow did. Bring us through hardness we didn't know we could overcome and we did, and then get to another one, and doubt and fear, and sometimes even accuse. God of not being good because we're afraid. Fear can make us forget. It can make us forget all that we've come through, all the faithfulness, all the goodness. It's just human nature. Fear makes us forget, but remembering, remembering God's faithfulness strengthens our faith. That's why it's important to remember. Because remembering what we forget will strengthen the faith because of God's faithfulness. When we look back and say, you know what, I'm a little bit afraid now, but if I just look back a ways before during other difficult spots of my life, Lord, I remember something about you, that all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. Every breath that I'm able, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. Fear makes us forget. Remembering God's faithfulness, well, that strengthens our faith. And so Moses says to them in verse 13, Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. 
keep calm and carry on, right? He's just, don't be afraid, stay calm. Well, sure enough, and the wrap of this, this is the last segment of the story. God does something pretty incredible. That, that cloud that had been leading them by day, God sends it back and it goes down to the ground in between the Israelites and the Egyptians and created a huge fog, so thick that you couldn't see very far through it. It was just like a, 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 a fog above all fogs. I mean, and so the Egyptians who had caught up to that point and were trying to rest and recover before they took the trapped Israelites back are now engulfed in fog and they can't see anything. So they're just like, they're like well, we'll have, to wait out the, we'll have to wait out till it clears. And at the same time, Moses raises his staff over the Red Sea and God has a mighty storm and a wind that blows and pushes the Red Sea and actually pushes it so hard that it creates a wall, a barrier, actually a, a pathway through the Red Sea and the wind throughout the night pushes, it says, and dries out the ground and allows the, Egypt, the Hebrews to actually walk across the middle of the Red Sea between the walls of water on dry ground. And it's hard to say as you read it, depending on how you interpret it, because it, we're reading an old story, if it was all the same night or if he used the first night to dry off the ground, the fog stayed there, and the next day and the next night it took him to get all the way through. You can debate both ideas. It doesn't really matter. It was a huge sea. We forget how many people were crossing the Red Sea. There were 660,000 men, according to the record, which means about 2 to 3 million people. And if you don't understand those numbers, that's like a, a couple miles wide. Picture, picture, you know, the stoplight and stoplight down to 231 or something like that, just wide of people side by side and that deep. Marching across, not a little pond, but the Red Sea. It takes take some time to get this done. And this whole thing happens as the Egyptians are kind of blinded by this, this, this weather fog that's set in their minds. They don't know what's going on. Finally, they figure out that the Israelites are moving forward and, and in the night, they say, we got to catch up to them. So they push through, and they find themselves walking in what seems to be dry ground, but it's actually the middle of the sea. By the next morning, the, Egypt, the Israelites have crossed the other side and have come out. And about that time, God begins to let you know, the, the chariot wheels of the Egyptians get stuck, or maybe get the water come and make it muddy again, or they're getting broken. And all of a sudden, they can see as the fog lifts, as the cloud lifts, that they're in the middle of the Red Sea with the walls of water next to them. And it's interesting how the story ends in the scriptures in Exodus chapter 14, verse 29. It says, But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the waters stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And of course, as we see, um, the, the water comes pouring down in the verses before that and just washes out the Egyptians. It says, And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. Isn't that a powerful visual? Where are our oppressors? Where are our captors that are chasing us and frightening us? And you're watching them, they're floating in the water, they're washing up on the side of the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And they continued their journey towards that promised land. And that's what the rest of the story is about from there setting up government, laws, national independence, travel, wandering. We'll talk, we'll talk about that later. For today, this was the beginning of their national independence. And for the past 3,500 years, the Jewish people have celebrated that deliverance, the beginning of their calendar year called the Passover. But here's what's interesting to you and me because most of us are not Jewish people. Most of us today, that's not our national heritage. That's not our story. 
You're going to light off fireworks on July 4th and make a lot of noise and scare the dogs. But you're not, you're not a, a Jewish person, so Passover doesn't mean much to you nationally. But here's what's interesting for you and me. 1,500 years after today's story, 1,500 years later, Jesus walked the earth. And he did his miracles and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he preached the good news and he fed the hungry and he gathered a crowd and he kept saying, I'm about to die and I'm going to rise again. And no one could understand that until he pulled it off. But he said he was coming and he was our Passover sacrifice, that he became the sacrifice and his blood was spilt on the posts of that cross. And inviting that all who put their trust and faith in him and in that sacrifice would experience what, that, that he, what he did for us was he, uh, he took God's judgment against sin and wrong and bore it all himself as our, as our lamb, as our, the lamb of God. And he, and he took on the and we put our faith and trust in what he did and the blood he shed for us and his life he gave for us and the resurrection he did to show us that death as a consequence to sin has lost his power and eternal life is now made possible despite our sin mortality because of what Jesus did for us. And he was our Passover. Not for a nation of Jews, but for a world of all races and all people, all genders and stripes and nations and people everywhere. And so before Jesus went to the cross, the last night before he, before he was arrested and crucified, he gathers with his disciples to celebrate, because guess what time it was in Jerusalem when he was crucified? It was Passover time. 1,500 years of Passovers, and this year Jesus gathers with his disciples before he's crucified for one last meal. And here's what happens. In Luke twenty two fifteen. 15, Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. And they eat, and Jesus teaches them about serving each other one more time. And at the end of the meal, it says this in Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is so much here that I can't get into because we need to take a whole other hour. And I don't have time for that. You don't want me to do that. But here's the deal. Jesus is saying some pretty outlandish stuff. He's saying, all these 1,500 years, this celebration has been a remembrance of your national independence. This has been a celebration of national freedom for you as a nation. I'm saying take this time and take this little feast time and do these things to remember me. Can you even imagine someone doing that in today's culture? From now on, when you celebrate July 4th, Independence Day, do it to remember Ireland, how awesome I am. I mean, it's almost insane. It would be heretical. He even goes on to say, I'm giving you a new commandment. You know, forget Moses' commandments, here's a new commandment. Who are you to give a commandment? He even says, I'm giving you a new covenant. It's like he's changing everything right then. But he's saying, what I'm about to do is not a national independence for you to celebrate nationally. What I'm about to do is global for all people, more important than this world, but eternal salvation for all people. You do this from now on in remembrance of me. And it's in remembrance of me because remembering is always the key because if we're not careful, we forget what God has done for us. So he said, I want you to do this regularly in remembrance of me. He goes on and says this in verse 20, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, a new covenant now. A new covenant between God and his people, not as national people, but all people who believe in all parts of the world, including us 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe. 
an agreement confirmed, Jesus said, with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And Jesus that day instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And so what we tell the story of the Hebrew people being set from slavery and their independence and their national day of celebration, that's an interesting story. But for you and me, that's not our story as a nation. But what we can relate to is that 1,500 years later, 2,000 years ago now, Jesus said, I'm making this about the whole world. That was a picture. That was a symbol of what I'm doing for everybody through my sacrifice as your Passover, through my sacrifice for your sins, through my resurrection. And so, we as Christians often celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion to say thank you, Jesus, and remember, remember him. Because fear can make us forget. Life can make us forget. But remembering God's faithfulness strengthens our faith. So here's what I want us to do for just a quick moment here. I want to ask all of us to reach into the seats in front of us and around us. There should be communion cups in the seats, in the seat backs in front of you. Everyone find one of those if you could, please. And I'm going to grab one myself. You can flip up the one side with the bread up and take it out first for gravity's sake. Flip it the other way up with juice. Take the juice lid off and get ready. In just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the juice and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as Jesus instituted it that day at Passover. Because that is our independence. Our independence from the, from the price and chains of sin. It matters to us today. And all of this was a good picture of what Jesus Christ came to do. Here's what I want you to do in your own words. Take a moment to pray. Thank the Lord. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is a great time to do it. In the seat back in front of you, there's cards. The third one says the gospel. You can read it over. There's a sample prayer you can pray. But just believe. Let the communion time be a time of acknowledging your faith that Jesus gave his blood and his life for our salvation and put your trust in him today. If you've already done that, I'm calling you to remember Whatever's going on in your life, remember today. Take a moment and pray. Before we take the bread and juice, thank the Lord. Remember the Lord. Trust in him today. Let your faith be strengthened today through remembrance. When you finish praying quietly for a moment, I'm going to pray with you. And when I finish praying, we'll take the elements together. But first, let's pray.